Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. Tara. How's it going? It's good. I think, I mean, I say it's good. And then I'm like, what is going on in this province? Yeah, it's uh, pretty brutal. I don't think we're getting any restrictions or help at all this time. We're kind of on our own and uh, it doesn't feel too good. I don't think we can actually beat this thing if we all work individually no, I think this, I mean, I think we've been saying this for 18 months at this point, like the virus is bigger than any one individual person. Yeah. And that's, you know, saying that when we started this podcast, we were thinking more about like personal finance and giving like individual tips and stuff. And, you know, just as a follow-up to the last few interviews that we've done, I was wondering if you wanted to touch base with what we would normally talk about pre-COVID, pre-starting this podcast, what we'd normally say for financial advice, um, and if our opinions or maybe even the advice itself would change, what do you think? Yeah, I think that sounds awesome. I think, you know, it's been an interesting 18 months and we've really, I think, done some good work in terms of digging into kind of all areas of how finances affect the feminist agenda. So, with all the amazing women we've interviewed and all the research that you and I have done, I'm curious to see how our opinions have changed. Cool. Let's do it. Also, did you got an agenda? I didn't get an agenda. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I meant our own agenda. Oh uh, yeah. Cool. Um, so usually this time of year, we'd be thinking about, you know, uh, not just kids going back to school, but post-secondary you know, maybe going into a bachelor's or um, going into a trade, that kind of stuff. And I know we've talked about student loans in the past. And I think my advice had been before that a student loan can be to your benefit because it helps with your credit score and you develop your credit history. And it's relatively low interest. You get to carry it for a while um, without penalty. and um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts about student loans these days? I feel like they shouldn't exist because I feel like university should be free. Ah, that's my opinion as well. That's awesome. I'm like, they need to erase student loan debt. Like the number of people I know that like have significant student loan debt from their obviously going to university and just like, don't make enough to you know, pay them off in 10 years or some of them make, maybe not even make the minimum payment. Like education is something that, you know, is going to give us as a society a return on our investment. So I feel like we should just delete all student loan debt. Like a huge debt jubilee for all student loan debt. I think that would be amazing. I think that would really help in terms of 
what we've learned throughout these past four seasons um, in regards to yeah. like inherited wealth and stuff too. One of the things that I was going to say over these past four seasons that I feel like I've learned is I cannot believe how expensive it is to live now compared to kind of what it used to cost. So like the, I guess, inflation of like the cost of living compared to the wage stagnation that we've seen. I think that has been really eye-opening to me um, and, you know, trying to save and afford your life and pay back your student loans just like seems impossible for a new graduate. Yeah, definitely. And I think I was personally, I was thinking about it in a different way um, because when I started university, I remember being 17, making a budget and realizing that I was never going to be able to afford university on my own and knowing that my parents couldn't afford it either. Um, you know, like I didn't come from money. I was the first person in my family to walk the stage for high school, let alone university. Um, but now where I'm at now and everything like that was looking at maybe doing a master's and realized that we had taken out at one point the equivalent of my student loan in debt and how it like didn't feel as big anymore. But it made me think that I shouldn't have been put in that position to begin with. Like it shouldn't have been just because somebody was born poor or their parents were born into poverty and managed to make all the right decisions to get them out of it. And that their children would be denied education simply because student loans, getting into university, all of those things are cost prohibitive. Um, yeah, no, I think not only for me, not only should student loan debt go away and be like a full debt jubilee for anyone who still has student loans, there should also be uh, free tuition. Like it just, if it doesn't yeah. cost a rich kid anything, and let's be real, it doesn't. Because if you're living off of that much inherited wealth and you have parents who have degrees on degrees and you're just gonna follow along and do degrees on degrees, your school has been paid for by maybe your grandparents' investment, right? Not all of the, us start off that way. Many of us do not start off that way. So I don't think that there should be tuition either. Yeah, and I mean, I was doing some research um, for our little ones, RESP, trying to figure out like, you know, how much do we actually need to save for this thing? And so I went back to the, the U of A's uh, like fee schedule. And next year I was astonished and uh, to be honest, quite disgusted actually with how much, um, because the UCP took the cap off on tuition, how much tuition is going to be going up by it's going to cost like for one year in, in business school, like over 10 grand for one year in an undergraduate program. Yeah. And I, like, I was looking at that too. So, I mean, Again, like, you know, my circumstances have changed pretty dramatically, but even knowing that I could fully max out my kids' RESP tomorrow if I wanted to, 
even with like a lump sum based on a, let's say 7% return, I don't know what they're going to be able to afford by the time, like if, if it keeps inflating at this rate, by the time they're 17, 18 years old, it's going to be the conversation of, yeah, not only do you have to live at home and go to the school closest to us, um, but maybe you also have to take a four or five course load and work 30 hours a week. Like, I don't want that for my kid. No. Um, I don't know. I feel like we don't want to get to where they're at in the States where it's just like, they take on like hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt for a program that's going to start them at 40 grand a year. Yeah, exactly. So there's got to be, you know, more public investment in, uh, into post-secondary institutions. And I think that counts for the trades as well. Um, mm-hmm. Just because folks that have gone to like university and stuff and look at that tuition and see it skyrocketing and ballooning, there are a lot of like short-term programs that don't qualify for a lot of grants, bursaries, scholarships, those kind of things, and are cost prohibitive. Because if your parents and grandparents all had minimum wage jobs, no savings, nothing like that, going to do a two-year diploma can be absolutely devastating. And not knowing if there's a job for you on the other side, that's that's terrible. What if we just took absorbed the cost to train Canadians to do the jobs that they're most interested in? Yeah, I think that would be great. I don't... Just gonna... Well, and off. I don't see a loss on that at all. Um, no, because they're going to be more productive members of society. They're going to earn more money. They're going to pay more taxes and they're going to be happy. Well, and I think we talked about it too um, a while ago when we were talking about the number of hours people worked. And I've come around to the point where if anyone is working more than eight hours a day, maybe even more than six hours a day, whether it be they have to do a side hustle or they're getting a lot of overtime or even unpaid extra work just to get the the work that they're required to do by their job done I think they're doing the work of two people that's taking away someone's job that's taking away someone's opportunity if we had free tuition and if we had a debt jubilee for student debt we could have like 10 times the amount of business grads we could accomplish so much more And, and even with trades and stuff like that too we could have so many more people working in agriculture right now um, you know, we, we could just make a better society basically, right? Like pay everybody, not just what minimum wage is now, but like a decent wage, keep everyone's salaries the same. What minimum wage should actually be, which is $24 an hour. Yeah. Or even more than that, pay everybody 75,000 a year, give everybody whatever post-secondary education they want get them doing real work, whether it be care work or like getting food out there. And and that also involves computer work as well. Like inventories need to be accounted for. Um, But we could all work like maybe six hours a day, four days a week and all be living great lives. Like, I think that would be pretty awesome. I think that's worth the investment. Totally. That's, that's the dream, right? We've become more productive and more efficient with our technology. Why aren't we reaping the rewards? Exactly. Exactly. I was just going to say, 
you know, we're thinking obviously our little ones, I can't believe I'm saying this, but coming up on the year mark here in the next quarter, which like, I don't know where the time went, but like thinking about, you know, dropping him off at daycare at like seven or eight in the morning and not picking him up till like five or six. Like, I'm like, how do we fix that? How do we not, you know, leave him for that long? Because like, I want to spend some of those hours with him. Like, I don't know, like what, pick him up at six and then he goes to bed at seven or eight. Like, that's no fun. And like a rush to get out the door. Like if we had six hour work days and we could kind of, um, stagger them between two parents like then your kid would realistically only be in daycare for like four or five hours a day yeah exactly and even when it comes to you know the gender wage gap and stuff like that too and um you know predominantly women taking off more time to do care work whether it be for a kid or for an elder or just somebody who needs more help um we could have less extra time for that And when we think about the types of women that are able to do that, the women that are able to like maintain good employment through that kind of stuff, like you can't really get a well-paying job that allows you to like drop your kid off at like eight or nine in the morning for school and pick them up at 3.30. You can't. There isn't a lot of part-time work for that. Yeah. Like what well-paying part-time work? Maybe if you went for school to school long enough, um, and let's say you have a master's or a law degree, or you're a nurse or something like that, you might be able to get that kind of flexibility. Right. But if you took a two-year admin degree or diploma, what are your options? It might just be now not even using the education that you took out a loan for, It could be like trying to get a part-time job at shoppers, maybe. And and how much is that going to pay you, right? Like we know that even like those minimum wage jobs, they're paying paying people minimum wage for part-time hours with no benefits. So the people that we're taking away from their kids most often are those low-income women too and low-income parents, low-income grandparents as well. So... For instance, anytime, let's say, a lady hires a housekeeper, we're taking, we're paying for that housekeeper's time away from their families to give, and like, mm-hmm. what kind of society incentivizes that? Like, what right do I have just because I earn a little bit more and just because my work decides that I need to work extra hours that I should then pay somebody to clean my house when really we should just have me work less hours, fewer hours, and have that person set up in a position where they don't have to spend that much time away from their family and they can engage in the care work within their actual community instead of just some like rich person paying them to leave their community and provide care work for someone who doesn't really need it. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't doubt that it can, like if you're working like 60 hours a week, it can feel overwhelming, even 40 hours a week. It feels overwhelming to keep up with the housework and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, if we had, you know, two people in the house working like 30 hours a week, like, yeah, it would probably be a lot easier to keep up with things. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I don't know. I think a lot of people would benefit by that. Like 
if we took the people that would still be there to say, do that kind of care work, whether it be childcare or housekeeping, um, like why wouldn't we first provide that to somebody who, you know, has a disability where they can't do those kind of things for themselves to the same extent. But now we're in the system where that person yeah. can barely afford to, is lost and can barely afford to survive. Like you get nothing when you're on disability. You get absolutely nothing. It's basically extended starvation. And we're expecting those people to do so much more, but somebody who can just afford it and who has already afforded to, has already been able to afford to take multiple degrees and set themselves up in this kind of life, then they can afford to take someone else's time away from someone who needs it and potentially someone that they love and care about. Like that's so fucked up. Yeah, there's, I just like thinking about this, there's lots of examples of that though, like in our society. Yeah, it happens so often. And I think I'm just a little set off because I don't know if you saw it, but that actress that was in The Good Place, she said that she is empowered as a woman because she can afford things without a man. And now she can like hire another woman to do work for her. But like, oh, I yeah, didn't see that. No one asked you if any other woman actually wants to work for you, dude. Like, mm. I would much rather work for my family than I would for you who thinks somehow paying me minimum wage to clean your wine stains is empowering. That is not empowering. That's just it. Like, you know, these people that are doing, you know, that like whoever this actress was, I can't remember her name, you know, she's empowering women or whatever, but it's like, okay, well then pay them like an appropriate wage for the work that they're doing. If it's so important to you. Um, and that's where like, I know we were supposed to talk about like normal personal finance stuff and we got distracted by policy, but you know, things like $10 a day daycare are, I mean, it should be $0 a day daycare. Let's be real. But like, it is so important that we have access to this because everybody, most people, I don't want to say everybody, everybody, most people need to go to work. And if you have children, it can feel impossible to make you know, the right choice in terms of what to do with, with your kids. Speaking of kids. Someone, somebody <laughs> should, be should be in bed. But yeah, like $10 a day daycare average of whatever, like we'll see how this actually plays out. And it should be $0 a day. But like, not only does it allow people to work, but I like, I think we've said it like as parents, we've realized like it takes a lot of other people to help you raise your kids. Absolutely. I would not want it to just be like me and my partner influencing my kids. It should be their grandparents and their aunts and their uncles and other people from our community, people who live nearby, like- mm -hmm. How weird would it be if your kid didn't play with your neighbor's kids? Totally. And so I was looking, um, we were talking kind of before we started recording, I was looking at the, the nanny site you sent us because we're looking for a little bit of part-time help right now. Um, and it asked me, you know, what is the, what, like, what are you willing to pay? 
And it says the minimum you have to put in is 1360 because that's the minimum wage in Alberta. And I was just like, I, and this is why we probably will not have an, like there are many other reasons why we won't have a nanny likely. Um, but one of them is like, I would want to pay that person who's taking care of my child a good and decent wage. But I feel like we can't do that because it's just so expensive. And so even though daycare is expensive, it is cheaper than um, that option. But imagine if we just had all of these centers, early childhood centers where all children went and we could employ you know, people who want to be nannies or want to be early childhood educators with full-time work, with benefits, with, you know, RSP matching, with living wages, like that would just be the ideal situation. And I mean, but we can't do that as individuals and anyone that thinks that somehow that they'll get to that level where they'll be able to just be like the best lady CEO and all that kind of garbage, like even that actress and whatever like that's just one kid then or like two kids or three kids there isn't enough unless we put it all together and like organize ourselves together which I kind of think is what the economy should be doing um personally yeah like we should be doing this together there's not enough money or resources um or ability to coordinate as individuals to make that happen, to ensure that every kid gets proper early childhood education and care, that every parent gets the help they need in those early days. Um, And then on the flip side of that, ensures that those people that are doing the helping, that are doing some of the most important work in our society are fairly and justly compensated for that. Um, I was listening to another podcast not that long ago and they were talking about how it's still a fight for people who provide care work overnight to either elderly people or people with disabilities that they're allowed to have like not 24-hour shifts and like yeah you shouldn't have to work 24 hours if you can split that into two 12-hour shifts or if, if you can split that work between four or six people, wouldn't that then benefit the person that needs the care? Like we just saw some epic failure, failures in long-term care. And that's not even what we saw, uh, or, or that doesn't even like reflect what people would have been struggling, struggling with individually, trying to have a personal care worker come to their house during COVID to, to help them do their everyday life things. Like that's unbelievable. I think it's unbelievable that we require that of doctors. I think it's unbelievable that we require it of nurses. And I think it's absolutely egregious that we require it of minimum wage workers who are just trying to help people like get out of bed. That's disgusting, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a perpetuation, right? Of you get stuck in a job like that. And you're too exhausted because you've been working 24 hours or been on call for 24 hours or whatever. And you can't look for something that maybe pays better or helps you get out of that cycle. And it just, you know, I I do want to bring it back to normal, normal personal finance, whatever that is. But like then, you know, how do people like that afford 
um, like contributions to their TFSA or their RSP or whatever financial instrument RESP we want to talk about, it, it becomes impossible. Yeah. And let's even say like, let's say this person qualifies for some sort of tax credit and let's say for Oh, fuck tax credits. I'm so over tax credits. I don't want to hear about tax credits ever again. Those should be right. Well, I was thinking about this too, though. Like a lot of the taxes we pay, um, if we're employed as employees and not as gig workers, they're automatically deducted and, um, transferred to the federal and provincial governments on our behalf by our employers. Right. So we might see that at the end of the year. So let's say we did get enough in tax deductions or credits or whatever, and got a big lump sum payment at the end of tax time, but we're still missing out. Even if you used your tax credit to um, pop up your TFSA and max it out or max up out your TFSA and your RRSP, which is some advice that I've given in the past, you're not reaping the same benefits as somebody who is able to contribute every week. We know that. Mm -hmm. We absolutely know that. And if everybody is doing it, you're buying, if you're getting invested in the market with your TFSA and RSP contributions, you're going to be buying when it's high. So we're putting people at a disadvantage in that way too. Like having these because they, because they don't have the cash flow on a weekly basis. Exactly. Basis. And that's a structural problem, right? Like we can't expect anyone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps if the only mechanism we give them for that is a one time or once a year, an annual lump sum cash payment when everybody who has means is just going to invest that money as they get it because they have proper cash flow. It's a rigged game. Absolutely is. So one thing I'll say on that as like a tip is like, if you are contributing to your RSP, like through your employer, or, you know, you're going to have some deductions or something like, I do think it's worthwhile looking at that TD one form and, you know, rejigging it so that you do increase your cash flow. Cause like the ideal, everyone always is so happy when they get a refund, but the ideal situation at the end of the year is to be zero right exactly exactly yeah and uh i think the td1 form is important and does get overlooked but like not everything is on there either right so no 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 not at all what's some other advice that you used to give i think like i used to be a lot more like hustle mentality. And now I'm just tired. I think, you know, I was like that person and I still am. I think I always will be. I don't think that's ever going to go away, but like, I feel like I always like encouraged people to like get a side hustle or like find another stream of income, which I, I still think is, is good advice. If you have the, uh, like mental and physical and emotional capacity to do so. But I think a lot of people, do that to the detriment of, you know, their, their relationships or their household or whatever. And so I am all for hustle culture. If you're able to like continue taking care of yourself and stuff, but if you're working 40 hours a week, you should be able to afford your life and you shouldn't have to work that second, um, job or side hustle or whatever. So I think that has for sure changed my outlook on things. Um, especially having a kid, I'm like, 
there's no way I'm finding extra hours. Right. Um, yeah. Having a kid has definitely changed my perspective on capability and what should be normalized in terms of capability and what you're taking away when you're not leaving enough of yourself left over at the end of the day to spend time with your family and those you care about. And I shouldn't, like, it shouldn't just be for people with kids either. Like, you know, it's just, it, it's what triggered me in, in me as well. But I'm like, man, like, if I hadn't tried to work as much as possible and put myself through university and done all that, like, I think about all that I've missed out on just in terms of relationships and like, really sucks. Something I was going to ask you, has this podcast and COVID and having a kid and the people that we've interviewed and stuff like that, like, has that changed what you think about in terms of investment and what it means to like invest in yourself and your community? I mean, probably. I don't know if I've thought about it to that extent. Um, I think it's definitely changed my outlook on, you know, what an essential worker is. Um, and so I think we should be investing in those types of workers and communities and supports. I think, you know, seeing things like in BC, there was a a health advisory that you couldn't travel outside of your little health zone. So that means like, if we, you know, take that into like Calgary or Edmonton or whatever, like you should be able to have like a grocery store and a daycare and a school and all of these services, a doctor and a dentist within your community. And so I think building maybe more sustainable cities, um, not that I didn't agree with it before, but I think having that is more important now and also having, you know, appropriate transit and appropriate ventilation. which is not something I ever thought about before. That's really cool. That's not what I was thinking about when I asked you that, but like, definitely. And we know that's like better for the environment too. Like it's better for community. It's yeah. I think it's just better for our mental health as well. Like for me, anytime we've chosen a place to live, like walkability has been huge. Like I hate driving and Mm -hmm. we try to have as few cars as possible based on our our lifestyle, but a lot of that was dependent on work too. You know, if you get stuck in a place that doesn't have like great public transit, like you're kind of hooped. But I think like what's changed for me and I've kind of created a little rule for myself too, is like, if I'm set like a $25 investment in my RSP or my TFSA or in investments outside of either, is it more valuable to me and to society as a whole, because I am dependent on society functioning properly, is it better that I put it in an investment fund that only benefits me and like maybe my spouse and my kid? Or is it more appropriate that I give it to a community outreach group So I've started making that for myself. Like if I'm going to put $10 here, I am also going to put $10 back. And I don't mean that like 
we should necessarily do that through charity. It's not charity. It's an investment in me if I ensure that nobody in my community is homeless. Yeah. Well, I think like, I don't remember if we talked about this in the podcast episode, but I know I had reached out to you. Like I saw in one of the Facebook groups I'm a part of called Mamas for Mamas. I saw a mom that was, um, you know, struggling to be able to afford food. So, um, like for me, that was kind of like a no brainer, like how, like you can't have that. We're in the middle of a fucking pandemic. You can't have that hustle mentality to go out and just take on more hours. Like maybe she was a server and her like job got cut or like maybe she wasn't a server and maybe her job still got cut. So, you know, kind of rallying behind those in our community that are brave enough to ask for help. I've started giving to, you know, organizations that say like they're, oh, we're going to get together every Thursday or every Friday at this location and just provide whatever these people say they need. And so like, I think that's really great too, to have that sustainability. So people don't necessarily have to ask for help either. Like this, to me, this is what I think our tax dollars should be doing. But if it's not going to, then I will place an additional tax on myself as long as I have a roof over my head and food in the pantry, why wouldn't I ensure that what should be done for my community is being done to the best of my ability? And if I can't contribute time, then I'll contribute dollars. And if I can't contribute dollars, I'll contribute time as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think through all of this, I've seen that like everything I ever paid in property tax has been misattributed because we don't have the public transit service that we need. We don't have everybody in houses. We don't have these systems set up so that people who are living in long-term care and people who are providing service in long-term care were able to get there safely and able to live safely. So whatever it takes for me now to build those cities that we wanna see, it might not be much, but it feels a hell of a lot better than whatever is deducted off my paycheck. Totally. Has anything else changed for you money-wise? Um, well, now that we've uh, sold and are renting, like everything is liquid, which feels a little bit more secure, I guess, in a weird sense, because provided we have our vaccinations and everything, like if we needed to leave, we could. And I think that's something that people don't think about. And now thinking more about refugees or even people who have to evacuate from the fire situations, it's not just an emergency fund that you need you need a fuck it fund. You just say fuck it and then (laughs) go somewhere else. You need wealth. Like you need the ability to be able to say, I can pick up and leave and I'll be able to start somewhere else. And like, maybe it won't be perfect, but at least I'll be alive. Um, and yeah, just thinking about the, the refugees that Canada will be accepting from 
Afghanistan and stuff like that, um, I think it's important that people keep in mind that the people that can get out of these situations, the people who can escape um, either war or famine or now climate disaster in, in BC, they're going to be people with a certain amount of liquid wealth and they are going to be able-bodied and they are, are likely going to be like middle-aged and do you follow Quentin Quarantino on Instagram? So his handle is, hold on, there it is, uh, Quentin.Quarantino. So he does a lot of like memes and gifs and funny things on Instagram, but he has like a ton of followers and he set up like a GoFundMe to pay for flights to and from Afghanistan to, to save people. He has raised seven million US dollars. And today they had their first um flight rescuing 350 Afghanistan Afghans, sorry. Um and they were mainly um women and children and whole family units. Cause I don't know if you saw any of the, the photos from the like Air Force One leaving. It was like pretty much all men. Um, and people were like, what about the women and the children? So he's like kind of spearheading this mission. And they have at least five more planes paid for as it stands right now to go back and forth. So like while it's not perfect, um, I guess a good news story. Yeah. It's good to see that people are are doing that kind of stuff. And, you know, one of the things that really hit home for me was, and this is something that I think, I think I've believed, but I think I've be, I am like more strongly believing it now after, you know, four seasons of this podcast is like, he says, every life saved is priceless beyond measure. And I think, you know, we've had this conversation so many times. It's like, you know, what is a life worth or, you know, how many deaths is too many deaths. And like, I keep going back to like, like one one life is worth enough to save. And there is no, like, we shouldn't aim for a certain number of deaths in a pandemic or in war or whatever it ends up being. And, you know, that extends to homelessness and, you know, not being able to afford food, uh, like food insecurity. We talked about that. Um, you know, I just think it can extend to so many different facets of, of our lives. Yeah, I think it would be really nice if coming out of this, more people stop thinking about the individual lives lost um, as negative externalities or the cost of doing business um, just to ensure that what our GDP increases by the number we said it was going to increase. I'm like, then you do it. You give up your life. If it's all like whatever, then you do it. You pick a family member. Like you're not going to. That does bring me into, so we talked with Dr. Lexier about uh, the abortion caravan and stuff like that. And then, of course, afterwards, on my private accounts, even, um, you know, people who are like abortion is murder and stuff. And I know that you got some interesting commentary as well, um, you know, pop in there. And I think like, get the fuck out of my ads, by the way. Like, if you're listening to this, which I really hope you aren't, because, like, then you're just, like, you need to go to therapy. But just get out of my ads. Like. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I think there really needs to be a distinction made 
between a living human being and what we provide as the necessities for living, whether that be like a food insecurity situation or what we dole out for disability payments and what that's actually able to afford. And that death by a thousand cuts is still death. And having an adoption system that is like completely fucking broken, obviously, like having that interview directly follow our interview with Michelle, I think should highlight that. Um, mm -hmm. And something personal for me, like I was pro-life. I didn't think that abortion was necessary, but then my late teens being what the adoption system was like, that's not giving someone life. And even though I still truly believe that the potential for life is beautiful, all life, human life, animal life, plant life, including fungi, um, no one has the right to tell another living being that you have to forcibly be an organ donor. And I don't think enough people talk about pregnancy like that, but prior to pregnancy or prior to conception or anything like that, that would be, that would be the way to go about this if you think life is sacred. Because after that, after implantation, what you're saying to someone else is that too bad, so sad, you're an organ donor for nine to 10 months and we don't care what that will cost you. No one will go around to people's houses, dragging them out of their houses and forcing them to donate a fucking kidney. And you don't need to. Unless you're in the handmaid's tale. Well, exactly. Right. But then again, we're saying like a certain life or the potential for life is more important than the person standing right in front of you. You're saying the potential for a baby boy, probably in many societies, um, is more important than the life of the mother. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, that's vicious and disgusting. Yeah. And I don't think anyone should at any point in anyone's life be able to tell them that they need to sign up to be an organ donor. No. While living. Like, yeah. like, it's not like, oh, once you die, it's like, no, you have to do this while you're alive. It's horrifying. Every time someone talks to me about it now, I just think about, you know, if we just pick the person who is, you know, going to a concert and they're like, well, you walked through the store of the concert. And by that, you said that if the person next to you, like, has some sort of crisis, you will now be hooked up to them on life support, donating your organs and your system and your blood to that stranger for nine to 10 months. And if you are disabled after it, or if it causes you mental harm or whatever, like too bad, we don't care about you actually. And that's exactly what forced birth is in my opinion. Totally. And that's exactly what it should be like pro-life, pro-choice, like they're both like, there's like geared as positives, but it should be like choice or forced birth. Yeah. Those are your options. Precisely. Because no one else is like, if we had people advocating as hard to ensure that every child born 
has a right to education. So like we talked about like abolishing student loan debt, like a debt mm. jubilee, uh, no tuition, uh, food. We talked about food security, transportation. Yeah, why are all of these, uh, there's a girl I follow on Instagram um, and she has moved to Paris or not Paris, she's moved to France and her kids are going to school there. Lunch is two hours per day. They don't, you don't have to send lunch with your child. It's part of going to school. They feed your child. Could you imagine if we did that at all of our schools across Canada? It'd be more cost-effective as well, right? Like it'd be a hell of a lot easier instead of having each individual parent make each individual stupid lunch with uh, freaking heart-shaped sandwiches or whatever to have like a few people just like making a meal together and then like serving it to the kids and then eating it teaching the children too about lunch and food and community. Yeah, exactly. Food came from. Yeah. It like, it's a learning opportunity. Uh, it's easier. And if we funded it, it would be a shit ton cheaper because like, if we actually even costed labor appropriately and not saying that I think we should necessarily put a cost on domestic labor to make it have value. Cause it, clearly does. But if we did that, the cost of each individual parent's labor of like making a fucking lunch every day versus like just paying for it. So not looking forward to that. (laughs) It bothers me so much. Like one of the things about going to, uh, from daycare age or like whatever early childcare age to school age is the damn lunches. I cannot stand them. Like I totally get why Lunchables became a thing. Mm, totally. I'm like making my own lunch. Like exactly right. But instead of instead of just like paying somebody to cook a nice homemade meal that like took into account the kids' like allergies and like where they are and serve them something and make them feel like real humans. We had Lunchables instead. We fucking chose Lunchables. And that's also disgusting. (laughs) We should live in a society where Lunchables are not a thing. Illegal. Never had to be invented. Yeah. But hey, they were damn delicious. Those crackers, man. I mean, chalk probably full of salt and sugar, but delicious. I was always a weird kid. I don't actually know if I ever enjoyed Lunchables. I liked the crackers best. I think I traded. Just the crackers. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. The trading at lunch was like kind of fun. I was also the kid though that got sent uh, to school with a tuna sandwich and a hard boiled egg. So thanks for that, dad. you're listening to this thank you so much no one ever wanted to trade with me it's good times i like dying laughing over here um well do you have anything else like we're coming up to the i like i i think that's it like i think there are things and i think there's value in in us still like providing this personal finance advice and explaining how credit scores are created and how to, you know, basically game the system to the best of your ability based on where you are in that system. I just think what 
has really not changed my mind, but opened my eyes more is just how political money has to be. And for anyone that says that it's not, then you're full of shit. So, and thanks for playing, but you're wrong. Um, and that's all I have to say on that. I like it. I think we should end it there is that the pink tax rebate will be that money is political. And if you don't see that you're full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. hope you enjoyed this week's episode let us know what you think on facebook twitter and instagram the pink tax podcast is recorded in the treaty 7 region of southern alberta our music is provided by margo you can find her work at noisebymargo.com sound editing by peter dobson if you'd like to support the pink tax podcast you can make a donation at liberapay.com slash pink tax podcast and submit a five-star review on apple podcasts